Do you realize you're fighting for your life? Freedom can be a captor. Truth liberates. Normalcy should be held up to scrutiny. When everything is on the line, learn how to stop living a lie. Hello, everyone. Hey, I want to begin again this week by saying thank you to all of you who have shown such kindness uh, to me and my family during this time of the loss of my father. And uh, just, I, I mean it when I say thank you for just the, the grace and the blessings that you've shown us, especially as we go through the services for a dad this weekend in Minnesota. Just thank you. Uh, it's a great, great church. This is a great, great church, isn't it? In fact, let's, uh, let's begin by greeting everyone in this great, great church because we're a great church in many locations. So thank you all, everyone in every location, and let's say hello and welcome to everybody. Hello, everyone at our campuses and online, whoever you are. Really glad you're here. Um, so grateful you're, you're with us today. Um, there, not too many years ago, there was an ad campaign to sell cigarettes. And do you know what the premise was for that ad campaign? Are you ready for this? It was none other than that cigarettes are really good for you. That was the premise of the ad campaign. So you saw ads. These are real ads from real magazines and so forth. One like this maybe, for example, which just says, you know, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarettes, so that's why you should smoke camels, and lots of them, right? Why not? And there was, after all, it was purported scientific evidence. There's some asterisks by the uh, scientific evidence, and we, things haven't changed too much since then, but, the, the, you know, it, it's good for you, and we've proved it in the lab even. And uh, there are so many benefits that there was even ads that said it'll make you a better athlete. Check out this guy. Uh, I love the quotes on this one. This is this athlete's favorite. Um, they give me an, an invigorating lift. They really set you right. Choose camels for steady smoking. He goes on to say, a feeling of well-being comes after a good meal and plenty of camels. Light up after every meal and don't forget to smoke between meals. <laughs> I'm not sure who that athlete is, but he's dead now. And then, and then there's this ad. Cigarettes will help you lose weight like this gal. It's a guarantee for a smoother for, a, for the slender figure, and no one can deny how slender she is because she smokes. And, and then uh, the cigarettes are so wonderful, why wouldn't we want pregnant women smoking them? And so here's this ad, the smooth taste of expectant moms, so baby can enjoy the benefits as well. My personal favorite is this one right here. Smoking is not only glamorous and sexy, it'll help you get the girls. It says right here, take a drag, blow in her face, and she'll follow you anywhere. There you go. <laughs> Try that. See how that works for you. So we look at those ads and there's a part of us, whether, whether we struggle with smoking or proud to smoke or not, isn't the point. The point is we know different today. And there's a part of us that wants to laugh at that and think, man, what, they were smoking something other than cigarettes when they came. You know, I mean, it's like, what in the world? How does that happen? Come on. 
but it was a message that was conveyed very effectively, and a lot of people heard it. A lot of people believed it. A lot of people did it. They didn't just think it. They didn't think it would harm them, and they smoked those cigarettes. When I was a kid, I had um, a couple of businesses, a little junior entrepreneur, you know. I, I mowed lawns and shoveled walks in the neighborhood of a lot of the neighbors. It was a good gig because I used my dad's equipment, and there was no overhead there. It was just like, Dad, we're out of gas, you know. It worked out great. And then... Um, so I would, you know, mow in the, in the summer and then shovel in the, in the fall and winter and spring and sometimes summer in Minnesota. But anyway, one of, one of my uh, clients, that sounds important, was Mr. Leonard's. He lived on the next street over, and Mr. Leonard's could barely walk. And the reason was not because Mr. Leonard's had bad legs, but because he had bad lungs. He, um, he had a machine that he carried around back before I saw that very often and an apparatus over his face just to help him get through the day. He, um, he started smoking early. He got hooked as a kid and he also died early from it. He'd been, if you will, fed a lie um, by example of others and some other things that happened in his life and it cost him. Living a lie always, always costs us something. It does. No matter how much we may not want it to be true or no matter how much we have a different reality in our mind or assumptions about what is the case, when we not only hear a lie but kind of believe it in a sense that it goes into part of our ideas and assumptions about life so that we actually start living it, doing it, behaving as if it were true, it always ends up costing us, which reminds me of what, what Jesus said, the truth, the truth will set you free. Mr. Leonard, he wasn't trying to shame me or scold me or say smoking is naughty. What was he trying to do? He was, he was, he was just saying, you know, I care about you, kid. Take it from me. So we started this series last week, and we dove in headlong, and we started with the premise that, you know what, we're all being lied to, and not just by a few advertisers. I mean, that still happens, and there's still lies about what's really good for us and bad for us on that level, but the misinformation is more pervasive, and it's bigger, and there's larger stakes, like we have ideas that we're being told, and, and a lot of people assume are true about who God is, and who you are and why you're here and what is the key to the good life and how can I really find happiness and how should I manage my money and what would it look like to be a family. There's all kinds of assumptions and truths, if you will, out there. But like Mr. Leonard, a lot of us are, are believing and therefore living some things that simply aren't true. And it's wreaking havoc on our joy and our peace and our lives and our families. Because we're at war with lies, all right? And the choice is not whether you're going to fight or not fight in the war. The choice is whether you're going to win or surrender. That's the choice. So everyone's in the war, right? We're calling this series, How to Stop Living a Lie. Like, how, how do you stop? How do you counter some of the, the lies with truth? 
and live in a different set of assumptions. Where does that come from and how do we get there? And some of the ideas we found in a book by John Mark Comer, but the biggest, the biggest thing that we're looking to in this whole series is the one himself who said, I am the way. There is a different way than a lot of people are going. And it's me. I am the truth because there's so many different narratives out there about what is real. And I, Jesus said, am the truth. And I am the life that you're looking for. I am it. You just got to trust me on this. So we're following Jesus. And the Bible warns us that because of the propaganda that's so steady and jammed down our throats, and Jesus, who is meek and mild and doesn't always jam it down your throat, there's going to be a struggle. Paul said to young Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, hey, welcome to the war. Fight the good fight. And I think that's God's message for every one of us. You ready to fight a fight? Some of us aren't fighters. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Come on, I don't want to fight. Well, I got news for you. You're in a war. A war that we can win. So, we're drawing back on some of the ancients, you know, for centuries. This isn't new stuff, right? The ancients said that, you know, there were three enemies that, to our souls that kind of came after us. And we, we identified these last week. They, were, they, they called them the devil, the flesh, and the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world. And they said they, they really come after us, kind of a counter-trinity, if you will, of God himself, uh, hell-bent on the ruin and destruction of your soul and your family and your life. Now, we got to pause here because, again, maybe you're just joining us. And you're hearing these words, wait, what? Devil? Uh, flesh? World? I mean, what in the world? It sounds like we're talking about squishy things that we in our sophisticated scientific era have kind of moved past. Like, isn't this language from like a superstitious era, a bygone mythological world that really no longer exists? I mean, really? We're talking about this? Does it seem like... I don't know, we're, we're better than this. And, you know, if a person is skeptical about all of this, it, it doesn't really help much. In the same way that a person might be skeptical or just learn to ignore the Surgeon General's warning. Our skepticism about spiritual stuff like this probably just adds to our vulnerability and our susceptibility because the enemy comes at us the devil, the flesh, and the world, whether we think it sounds sophisticated enough or not, and whether you believe in him or not. And the strategy that the enemy has then in these three areas kind of looks like this. The devil we talk about is this simply a way, and this is kind of coming out of Scripture in the ancient way of looking at things, is it starts with deceptive ideas, like just plant a thought. We see it in the Garden of Eden with Eve. We see it with Jesus as he was tempted in the wilderness, like just whispering in the ear, deceptive thought, which then kind of gives way to a disordered desire, what the Bible calls the flesh. Well, these are God-given feelings and desires that sometimes get kind of twisted and contorted, and now they, get, they want to run rampant and make us act less than our noblest, best godlike selves. And when that happens in large scale and lots of people buy into the lie and behave in the ways that the flesh wants us to and it gets normalized, like, oh, that's just the way it is, we all just smoke pregnant. Well, then that's called the world in scriptural or spiritual terms. So, 
all of it begins kind of in your mind. So, I mean, let me just ask you this again. Have you ever had a thought that you, you kind of recognized was, like maybe there's a little part of your subconscious that recognized this is probably not a good thought, but you, you couldn't seem to let go of it or it maybe couldn't seem to let go of you? Like it just, it just presented itself so strongly in your mind like it was haunting you and you couldn't like, if you will, exercise it out of your mind. You couldn't get it out of your head. And what spiritual leaders for centuries have said is, well, the reason we sometimes have thoughts like that is, is that those are lies that can get in there and they're more than thoughts. They're, they're kind of animated by a dark energy, a demonic force, which is the devil's primary assault on the world. It's through our mind and our, and our thought life. I suspect a lot of us have actually encountered this. You know, I it's kind of a vulnerable thing to say, but I, I won't go into detail, but I, I tried something. I'll tell you. It was my recital. I should never have taken um, singing in college. But I did, and we had, it was an easy credit. We, we, had to, we had to do a recital, and I had to memorize this song in German, why they couldn't have, whatever. Anyway... And then it was hard to sing, and also I was very nervous, and I was not prepared, and I got in there, and I kind of like to do things well. I was good at a lot of things, but you know what? I botched it. I, I stopped in the middle of that song two or three times, and finally the instructor handed me the sheet of music. And I had to look at it and muddle my way through, and it was not pretty. And friends and family were there. I was sweating like a pig. It was just the grossest, horrible experience. Now, here's the thing. I failed that night. Um... I failed that night, but what happened in my mind was something very interesting. Um, there would be a positive, hey, Ben, you could do better, you should probably prepare next time, all of that motivational stuff that should happen. But you know what did happen is I began to tell myself, I didn't just fail, I am a failure. I didn't just screw up, I am a screw up. And that thought didn't leave me for a while. It just kept coming in and I began to look at other parts of my life through that lens like see I can't even do that right anyone ever had a thought like that it, it's it's an example of what happens and it's not from God it's a toxic lie that that will eat you like with the worm of shame from the inside out and just play on repeat in there and the ancients said oh yeah that's a thing that happens all the time and it's it's tied to the spiritual realm you don't have to believe that. You can say it's all neurology and okay. Or when a person succumbs to the grip of addiction, even though maybe some of us, we're chain smokers and we really don't want to be, but we're addicted. We know the ads, we see the, the warnings, but it's like it's got a power of its own. How do you explain the power of addiction exactly? Only humans really seem to have it the way that we do. Or when you hurt someone, or some other action that you do that you know is wrong and you feel bad about it. And what I've seen a hundred times is a person begins to think from all of that, this toxic thought enters like, you know what, God hates me. God is disgusted with me. And then we begin to go on the defensive like, well, I don't like God either. 
I've seen it a hundred times. I keep a distance from God. I stay away from church and all. I begin to buy into all that negative stuff I hear about those stupid, self-righteous, holier-than-thou Christians because who likes them? They're all judging me anyway. And it just, I've seen it a hundred times. And if people stay away from God, they stay away from the very sources of their life, their health, their hope, their joy because of a toxic thought that seems like it's just like, gotcha. Or when a person even has that thought that tells them there's no reason for living. There is, in fact, no hope. And they're about to live out that lie in a way that will make a permanent decision based on what is temporary in a way that they can't see is a temporary problem. These are toxic thoughts and lies that are not from God. And the Bible simply says, oh yeah, those sometimes come from our enemy. Now, we might have trouble with that, saying, oh, there's such a thing as an enemy. I, I, I'm not going to try to convince you of anything, but I, I will just tell you what the Bible says. The, Jesus himself had no issue with this. Okay, open your Bible if you've got it or get your little app out if you want to go to the Bible app. We're going to look at John 8 and not a lot of it here. I just want to give you the context and then center in on just one verse. Jesus is talking to some religious officials and they're having a little bit of a sparring match. He never really got angry or ticked with the sinners. It was always the religious self-righteous folk that ticked him off and then he went at it. And they kind of implied he was a bit of a bastard like from his questionable upbringing. You know, they kind of, they, they implied that. And Jesus says in reply to them, verse 44 of chapter 8, you, well, uh, speaking of parentage, you belong to your father, the devil. So this is a nice little conversation they're having. You want to carry, yeah, yeah, this is, this is an interesting conversation. You want to carry out your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. He's kind of talking about the devil. He's kind of talking about them. And when he lies, his, he speaks his native language. That's a, Jesus is a pretty good insulter here. This is good. Um, for he's a liar and the father of lies. There are three things I just want to help you see that Jesus is teaching us. This is the longest, most extended section where Jesus talks about any of this demons or devil or any of that stuff. Anywhere in the Bible, we ought to pay attention. There are three things we can, we can learn. Number one, for Jesus and the New Testament writers, friends, the devil is real. There is a devil. That's just, okay, so you can argue it or say it's not real or whatever. It's not a myth or superstition to him. It's not something out of a Harry Potter novel for Jesus. It's... There's a real devil. G the Greek uh, word that Jesus uses here is diablos, diablos, and, and it, it just means the accuser. But scripture also has other names. The devil is, is an accuser, but also known as the Satan, or the evil one, or the tempter, or the destroyer, or the deceiver, or that dragon who deceives the world, or the serpent who leads the world astray. A cunning source of evil, influential behind so much of the evil that we see in the world is how Jesus thought of this being. And in fact, so confident was Jesus in the presence of this being and this force that he says, that's actually why I came. To push back this rebellion against God, this one who is trying to lure everyone away from God. Jesus said, I came to destroy the devil's work. He said, I came to bind the strong man. He said, I came to set humanity free. And his ministry defeated the devil again and again and again. 
He defeated the devil in the wilderness. He defeated the devil every time he cast out a demon. He defeated the devil every time he taught the truth. He defeated the devil once and for all when he went to the cross and rose again. And as Colossians says, he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus' ministry was all about this. I think he thought the devil was real enough to come and get into the fight. And now he's called us to join him, this defeated already enemy called Satan who is now last out in his final tantrum in the days that he has before Jesus finishes everything up. And in the meantime, Jesus says, oh, we won already, but in the meantime, there's going to be some trouble, and why don't you join me in the fight? And we'll call it the church, and against the church, no one will win. In fact, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's Jesus' perspective on all this. You have an enemy, we have an enemy. And Jesus is saying, it's not our lack of education that is our primary problem here. It's not if we had a little better system of government, we wouldn't have so many problems on the planet. Our problem is not inadequate wealth distribution, as is popular to talk about today. It's not the misabuse of power, as important as those things may be to talk about. Those are symptoms of a larger problem. What's the problem is that you have an enemy, the devil is real. That's the first thing we learn. This animating force behind what's wrong with the world is there. Second thing is that the devil's end goal is to wreck everything. <laughs> That's what he's about. Pretty simple agenda. Jesus says he's a murderer from the beginning. What does that mean? Well, he wants to end life. That's his intent is to destroy and end life. He's not here to sort of like, you know, you know give you a flat tire. He's here to end your life. Think of it this way. Beginning of time. What do we know? Go to the scriptures, find the truth, and it says God is this God of creative love and beauty who brings out of this chaos, this swirling mass of nothingness, order and light and beauty and goodness and steps back and breathes life into things and says, ah, this is good. There's harmony, there's peace, there's shalom. Ah, that's the way I like it. And the fallen one, the devil has some power as well to uncreate and to destroy like a kid who after someone else makes a nice tower of Legos just gets his jollies knocking it over. Why do kids do that? I don't know, little devils, that's why they do it. And the enemy wants to suck life out of everything and everyone and to create disharmony, the opposite of peace, discord, hatred, ugliness, chaos, and looks at all of that and says, now that's good. Calls what's good bad and calls what's bad good because he's the father of lies. Jesus says, John 10.10, the thief he calls him. He wants to steal stuff. He comes... Only, it only has one reason for showing up, and that is to steal and to kill and destroy. And I've come for the opposite. I want to give you life so you may have the best kind of abundant, full life, the life that we all want. The, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's why I'm here. But you've got an enemy who's also here, y'all, and he's here for one reason. He wants to steal your joy. He, he, wants to, he wants to steal your life. He wants to steal your family. He wants to kill your future. He wants to destroy your ability to enjoy intimacy in pure ways. He wants to destroy your reputation. He wants to destroy a young person's uh, identity and path. He, he wants to destroy everything, our health, our friendship, our families, our society, one person, one life at a time. You tell me if it makes more sense to believe that everything just evolutionarily sort of just happened and that's why a few things are going off the rails in our society or if it makes more sense to believe that in fact there is some force at work in the middle of a world with so much good and beauty in it that keeps that keeps trying to wreck things. 
The Bible says it's war. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God, but is counterclaimed by Satan. Both want to say the same thing. That person, that thought, that mind, that conversation, that, that home, that relationship, that institution is mine. Only one gets to, to speak truth in that moment. So this is war. The devil's real, Jesus wants us to know. He wants you to know that he wants to wreck everything. And the third thing is that the devil's main strategy is lies. That's it. That's it. That's his means to the end. His main tactic, if you will, is lies. He's the father of lies. That's his name. In other words, he's the origin point of deception. When he lies, he's just speaking the language he knows best. So when we think about, um, I don't know, devil, demons, all this stuff. C.S. Lewis, I'll paraphrase, used to say there's kind of two equal and opposite errors we can make. One is to not believe any of it and say, don't believe any of that. And the other is to sort of be overly enthusiastic and excited about believing this and seeing a demon behind every bush and calling everything that happens spiritual warfare. And he says it doesn't matter to the enemy. Either one, it gets you to the same place. He's just as happy with the one who's like, oh, I'm a science person. I don't believe in the devil. Or a person who says, um, everything's spiritual. I ran out of toothpaste this morning. It's spiritual warfare. It's like, well, you did squeeze all the toothpaste out. You've been using it for nine months. Maybe it's not spiritual warfare. I lost my keys. I'm under attack. It's like, I don't know. You just may be absent-minded. So we have to be careful because when we assign those kinds of things to spiritual warfare, we're liable maybe more so to miss what the Bible actually talks about. And what the Bible talks about is not so much that it's going to be big tsunamis and um, horrible dreams, although sometimes these things happen, okay? Manifestations that we see that are very dramatic. What the Bible wants to understand here is that our primary war with the devil is a, is a fight to believe truth over lies. That's it. That's the territory. So, recap. Jesus wants you to know, okay, y'all, there is an invisible, real intelligence that's at war with God and all that's good, beautiful, and true, okay? And, 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 and call him the devil, and his end goal is to wreck everything, including you, society, family, your future, your parent, everything. And, and his method, his means of attack, his, his MO, his go-to strategy is lying. So, in the words of Pontius Pilate, when Jesus stood before him, Maybe the question we should ask is this. What did Pilate ask him by no? What is truth? It's a big question. What exactly is truth? Well, let me throw a couple things at you and we'll see what sticks, okay? Are you still with me? I know this is weighty, it's kind of heavy, but you're big boys and girls. This is, this is important stuff. 
Hang in there because we're going to get something really positive we can take out of this at the end. I want to just help you see some things about the truth, okay? The truth. The easiest definition for truth maybe is just reality. <laughs> Think of truth as that way. It's just, it's what's real. The chair you're sitting on, if you're sitting, is real. It's there. You don't have to make it up. Here's another way to talk about it. Reality you could define as what you run into when you're wrong. <laughs> okay? So like when you have an idea and I think this is true but it doesn't turn out to be true, reality is like the cold hard truth as we say. When I was a kid, I, I watched Mary Poppins. You all remember that? that? Like the real one, not the animated. We're talking Julie Andrews, right? The highlight for me, the highlight for me, anybody want to guess what it was? She flies. I love that part. It's like, I was just like, oh, it's a girl movie until that happened. And it was like, wow. She gets that umbrella, pops it open, and there she goes, flying over the city. That was so cool. Didn't matter how bad the graphics were. I fell for it. It was like, yes, look at that. Imagine being able to fly like that. And I was pretty sure I could and pretty sure it was cool. And it looked so easy. And then it dawned on me, we have an umbrella just like that one. I know right where it is. It was at my level, about my height, in mom's closet behind the blue coat. And I went and got that umbrella. And I went to the highest set of stairs we had in our house, which was the ones leading to the basement. It was before OSHA. There was no railing. It was also before, um, you know, helmets and seat belts, but never mind. And I went to the highest step and opened that umbrella. And I was excited because, you know, I was going to fly. And then I jumped. You're not going to believe what happened. Actually, you might. Yeah, I went straight down to our concrete floor in a real hurry. The umbrella went this way. I went that way. And my feet hurt. My ankles hurt. My wrists hurt. My elbows hurt. And my head hurt. Because what happened? I really, 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 really believed I would fly like Mary Poppins, but I ran into reality. I ran into the truth of the basement floor, the truth of gravity, the truth that I can't fly, just like Mr. Leonard's ran into truth about cigarettes. Truth is reality like that. It's actually what is the case. When we run into an idea that we thought was right and we're making decisions based on it, we're living that. If we're living a lie, there are consequences every single time. And that happens for us. And then we hit the basement floor. And friends, this is why as a parent of young adults, I can relate to our parents of young adults. We have a solidarity, don't we? Because we look at our kids who are who are middle school and high school and it's why we worry and pray and, and lose sleep because we see them thinking things are fun and exciting and adventurous and what could be the harm and they're falling for the ad and, and we, we're seeing things, we're seeing our own past, we're seeing history, we're seeing things we've known because we've hit the floor a few times and it's why we pray and we worry and they think I'm Mary Poppins, trust me, I got this and we worry and we pray and there's friction in those relationships sometimes all because what? We're competing with ideas about what in fact is true and friends, that's exactly what Jesus as our heavenly parent who wants nothing but the best for you and me is doing for all of us. When he says, 
says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and it's a truth that'll set you free. It's what you want, but you gotta trust me. The only way you'll get there is trust me. And by the way, he says, if you follow me, I will lead you to that way, that better truth and that life. And it is a, it is a truth that will, you'll be so glad, but there, there is an enemy who's trying to lead you another way. The way it happens in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, don't be afraid of the devil. Some of us have been told we're supposed to be afraid of the devil. The Bible never says that. It says run away and it says be alert. That's all it says. You don't have to be afraid. The devil's not going to come get you if you are what this says, be alert. Be aware and of sober mind because the devil is likened here to a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I've been on the Maasai Mara in Kenya out in the wilderness in a jeep with binoculars watching a lion follow a, a herd of, of zebras or, or, um, wildebe or, or water buffaloes or, or little deer. I've seen it. And what are they looking for? They're looking for the outlier who's daydreaming and not paying attention and who gets separated from the flock who's just like... And then that's the loner that the lion goes, oh, there's easy pickings. And the Bible is saying, just be on the alert. Don't be fooled by the, by the fact that others say, oh, there's nothing to worry about here. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in the, you could put the word truth in there. Let me give you one more way of thinking about um, Truth. This is an idea from John Mark Comer that really he stole from, I think, psychologists and all. It's just called mental maps. A mental map is like a set of ideas we have in our head, like a mental construct that tells us how to navigate through something, right? So we have literal mental maps, like I know how to get from my house to the church building. I get in my car, I go out, I don't have to think about it, it's in my head. I don't have to get a map out and put in GPS. I have a mental map. I know I turn left on record, I go out, turn right on the old false, and I go out and then I turn left on the little curve and then I go right on Mountain Road and I go through three, two lights and I turn right in here. It's, it's, it's easy, it's there. Now, if I think, Today I think I'm going to turn right out of my driveway and left instead and then right and, and, and I just mess up. the. If my mental map is wrong, will I get where I want to go? No, you won't. It doesn't matter how much you want to or think you're going to or someone promised you that was the directions. If it sends you in the opposite direction, it's going to send you in the opposite direction. And what we're talking about with mental maps is we all have them. We could call them a worldview, a set of assumptions that, that we think are the, what is the key to the good life? What is God like? Why am I here? How do I handle my money? What, do I, what should I think about sexuality? What, what should I think about how to treat people? What's a good marriage and how do you build it? All those, we have mental maps for it. And we think we know and we're just going and going and going. And some of the mental maps we have maybe are right and will lead us there because they are congruent with God's design for the way things actually are in reality. And if those mental maps don't square up or are not congruent with God's design and intention for the way things actually are for our best, it's not going to lead us where we want to go. So it's not a matter of being naughty or someone shaking a finger at us. It's just about do we want the good life Jesus promises or not. And if so, we've got to be able to get our mental maps or our truth from a reliable source. In our society, the source of truth has changed in the last generation or two. We used to 
We used to trust things like God and Scripture and the church, and we trust now other sources of information, the university or research or whatever you want to say. And so now, now we've kind of redefined in the secular mindset in our day what we understand as real truth. Like things that can be known are in the realm of like math or biology, but not things like right and wrong. Those things used to be understood as truth, but now not so much. We've conveniently moved subjects like religion and ethics, like how to behave and what's right and wrong, into the domain of just something we consider very, very soft and fuzzy, like belief, like, like it's opinion, like it's just sort of feelings or wishful thinking. And then as our world has become more globalized and we've seen other world religions around us, we began to view religion itself as just a collection of private opinions, kind of for your own private therapeutic purposes. Not really this stuff. It's just sort of whatever works for you. Just keep it to yourself, but you can have your reality, your truth, and that's okay. Some would even proclaim that pretending to even know truth is oppressive to others. An illustration of this you can see in our day and age, which might help you see this more clearly, is this, the issue of separation of church and state. Originally, that language and that idea came about to keep the state out of the church. That's why we did that thing in the beginning, right? But it's mutated now, and it's forgotten completely because of this shift. And now most assume that the reason we have that is to keep the church out of the state, right? Because after all, that's religion, and that's just a private matter. It doesn't belong in a public sphere where we've got to have things that are true. Tell that to the leaders who built all the government buildings and all the universities and put the words truth and, and virtue on the, on the buildings. But never mind that. This new mindset says that ethics and values and God and, and theology and things like how to behave and right and wrong and how we treat each other is all just, uh, you can't really know any of that. It's just soft relative stuff. And, and, and they don't see that the knowledge of Jesus is reality at all. We don't talk about the separation of biology and state. But we do talk about the separation of church and state because we know that stuff's just sort of soft and silly and good and evil and God and all that's just sort of relative. And it's in a fuzzy realm. But Jesus and the Bible writers knew that faith, my friends, listen up now, is based on, on reality. It was based on knowledge and truth that God is real and that his word is true and that he was true, that Jesus was the way and the truth and the life. And that all that he says is true. And this is the big difference between Christianity and any other world religion is that Christianity says we're based on New Testament events, like things that happened in space and time. There's dates and places and names and stuff. God isn't a myth. These are real things that happened in real space and time on the timeline on history. We follow a religion that is not a philosophy. It's not based on feelings. It's not like a hobby like you have yours, I have mine, but let's not really bring it into the public sphere. It's not any of that. It's, it's about one who God, who, who, who God so loved the world that he actually in real time gave his son. He came, he had a name, 
Jesus of Nazareth, he lived, he died, he rose again. Like it happened, like you can measure it and eyewitnesses saw it. And if anyone believes in him, then, then they can have access to that same truth and that same life. That's the idea. Friend, you're believing in something, some plan to get you where you want to go in life. You have mental maps, we all do. The only question is, what are your mental maps and where will they lead you? Are they based on the truth of who God is? We all live by faith. It's not a spiritual concept or a religious thing. To have faith is simply to live as if something's true. And we're all living as if something's true. If you put your trust in something or someone and you remain loyal to it, there's your faith. I jumped off the stairs because I believed I could fly. And I was wrong and I rewrote my mental map. And some of us are called to change, Jesus says. Like you might have to repent a little. You might have to, he just means change your mind about some stuff. And realize that the question is not do you have faith, because you do. The question is who do you have faith in or what do you have faith in? Because we all are following some mental map. And Jesus just gently comes to us and says, man, you can trust me. I love you. I've got your best interest in mind. I'm not here to scold you or shake a finger in your face, but I'm telling you, I am the way. This is what the Bible means when it says repent and believe, trust the good news. You know what a sin is, is when we believe a lie about what will make us happy. I think in lately about some of the ways I do that. Are you doing that? Like you're convinced something will make you happy, even though there's a part of you that knows it's a lie. Jesus says repent and put your trust in the one who is good news. He'll lead you to the happy and good life that we really want. Let me just leave you with something real concrete because our spiritual feeding that we need is what we will fuel our spiritual warfare. We don't have to lose this battle. We can win this war. And there's a spiritual feeding that we need. So let me leave you with a couple things that all of us can latch on to. The practical part takeaway is this. Something you and I can do today and every day and over the long haul help us get stronger and stronger and better in the battle. Number one, don't be disappointed how basic these are. Feed on God's word. Feed on God's word. Because, you know, we become like whatever our vision of God is. That's who we become. The goal when we say feed on God's word is not to get a bunch of information, but it's to, it's to experience some kind of transformation, like really changes. It's not, to, it's not just to think about scripture. It's to like think scripture. You see the difference? We got to feed on God's word a little bit, chew it a little bit, you know, maybe the first thing before you get up in the morning, you know, when you get up in the morning, so we can soak our mind and imagination in Jesus before we're assaulted with a bunch of lies, okay? Everybody with me? Second thing I would say as a strategy to just kind of stand firm in this whole battle is to feed on prayer with God. I mean, just time with God, like just, it's about the voices we hear, and so praying is a chance for you to speak your concerns and your fear and your confusion and let yourself also hear the voice of truth in your life because we become like the voices we hear. Maybe scripture and prayer kind of go together and we can hear from God in his word and kind of ask him questions back. 
A little bit of that every day is going to help us in the battle. The third thing I would say is feed around good people. Feed around, I would say feed on good people, but that sounds kind of cannibalistic, so I'm not going to say that. But you get my point. Because whoever you hang around, honestly, that we all know this, you become like people you're with. Feed around some good and godly people. And then finally, feed on good thoughts. Feed on those good thoughts. Because we become who we are in our minds. So the Bible says in Philippians 4, man, guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus and put your mind on things above. Like, like think about whatever is praiseworthy and noble and excellent and good and pure. Like just intentionally think on the good stuff instead of all the basement gutter stuff. What we give our attention to ultimately shapes who we are. So if our attention has to go to certain things, we have got to counter that with, with other good and godly and noble things. It's just simply the, the plain math of it. So we have to beware, be smart about entertainment choices and news choices and the volume of that and our reading habits and our screen time and how much and how long because all that stuff has an influence on part of our spiritual formation into the likeness of Jesus or part of our spiritual deformation into the likeness of the enemy. So simple math tells us that we're spending about six hours a day as an adult uh, watching TV or videos or whatever. Kids are on their phones four to six, around 100 hours a day. I don't know. It's crazy. It's, our, it's, it's years of our lives and thousands of hours consuming things that maybe aren't even edifying at all. And then we're going to struggle in the battle. And here's God's will for us. Ephesians 6, it says this, put on the full armor of God. And then when the day of evil comes, and it'll come, Jesus says, you're in the battle. You're going to be able to stand just fine. You'll stand your ground, and after you've done everything that you need to do, you'll stand. So stand firm. Friend, you can stand firm. How do you do it? Get a little more God in you. Listen to the voice of truth. Get a little more prayer going out of you. Get around some people who can help you on the battle. You know what? That's what we need to do. And then just pay attention. Pay attention to, to the thoughts that are in your mind and feeding your mind, and that's how we will what? Stand firm. You can do it. We can do it. Jesus said we could. He's already won the big battle. Let's do it. God, help us to stand firm in the battle. Help us not to get wigged out, freaked out, or scared out by the devil. Help us to remember, though, to be alert, to not be stupid, to not believe the advertising that is just flat out not true, so that we can get our mental map dialed in with Jesus, who just says, trust me, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We want to trust you, Jesus. So help us, because we've got a lot of pull coming the other direction. Just help us to break free and run after you, Grab hold of the way and the truth and the life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.